There's two ways we're going to chop this down. The illusions of idolatry and the disillusionment of grace. Let me pray before we get into this. Lord Jesus, I, I am grateful that you're alive, resurrected, and reigning in heaven right now. I'm grateful that these are not words on a page like Shakespeare or Homer or some history book where we are looking at something that was recorded but doesn't have a life of its own. Your word is living and it is active and it has a mind of its own. It has your mind. And because it is your word, it is omnipotent. It is transforming. It is patient. It is powerful. I pray to you now because I know how weak I am and I know how weak my friends are. Would you come and through a very weak and thick-skulled vessel... Preach good news to weak people as well. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, there is a narrative. It's a popular narrative out there these days that says this. Humanity will eventually evolve out of our need for God or our need for religion. Uh, it's it's kind of goes under the banner of Karl Marx that religion is the opiate of the masses. It might even grant you that and say religion's been a nice emotional existential crutch during more primitive seasons of the human race. But we're getting more technologically advanced, scientifically advanced, medically advanced, economically prosperous. And so we're kind of engineering our way out of this primitive need for a higher power for God, for religion. And so the, the, the narrative goes, as societies become more developed, they become less spiritual, less religious. Maybe we see our need for God less. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Because this is the spirit of our generation. And it's, it's kind of the, 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 it's the air we breathe culturally. It's the water we drink. It's not just outside of us, but it is in us. It's the way we think about things. We see a little bit of plausibility in that narrative too. Maybe that is true. Maybe religion's on the decline because we don't need God anymore. Well, this is bad news, but it's good news for tonight because it means you're going to be able to hear Hosea 2 a lot more easily because what I just described to you was Israel around the 750s BC. We have a tendency to think that technology was invented in the 1990s. The root word of technology is technom, which just means tools. Humanity has been making tools ever since humanity has been alive. Each generation has its own technological advances, medical advances, scientific advances. It's just our generation that thinks we're the ones that have finally arrived on the cusp of divinity. We don't need God anymore. That is exactly how Israel, the people of God, postured itself during this time. Prosperous. It was this tiny little sliver of time in their history where they weren't bothered by all the big bad nations around them. They were the, the prominent ones, the strong ones. They finally had some peace. They had a lot of money. Things were going really well for the Israelites. And there's this weird phenomenon that usually when we're in seasons of prosperity and in strength, when things are going great, we think we're kind of making God obsolete. Functionally, we stop maybe praying. We stop feeling a need of him, feeling dependence upon him. 
Maybe his word or preaching or whatever just sounds like noise. We find ourselves going days or weeks or even months without even thinking about him. We are this narrative. And deep down in our bones, it tracks in our lives too that maybe the more content and strong and prosperous I am, the less I actually need him. Solomon is perhaps arguably one of the wisest kings ever recorded in history. He says in Proverbs, even Solomon, the wisest man, prays to God, Lord, two things I ask of you. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. He's making that connection. Please don't give me too much. I know what my heart will do. I'll disown you functionally. He's the king of Israel. He's the leader of the people of God. He would never consciously deny God, but he knows functionally I will disown you. And with a puffed out chest, I'll be like, who's God? I don't, I don't need God. We're going to take a little break, have a little distance for a little while. He's a wise man indeed for saying that. What is the connection though? Why is it during the strong seasons when things are going well, you hit your stride sophomore or junior year and UGA is just a fun place to be. You, you're like going around campus and you run into people, you know, you found your friend group. You don't feel that existential dependence you do freshman or sophomore year or senior year when you're about to leave this little nest. But you're in that sweet spot. Is it harder for you to drift junior year when everything seems to be a little easier for most of you? What is this connection? What is the correlation between these beautiful, wonderful, easy seasons and functional atheism that comes up in our heart? A denial that we need God. Why does idolatry tend to flourish in this? Here's why, and I'm going to be really brief on defining idolatry. It comes up a lot this whole semester. We've talked about it a lot, but if you're new tonight, idolatry is basically turning stuff God made, trying to prop it up as God himself in a way that eclipses God. So it's like this becomes God and I can't see anything past it. Sex becomes God and I can't see the God who invented it for your joy anymore. Food becomes God. Control, comfort, security. Social status, whatever it is, becomes divine, a refuge, a safe harbor for your emotions, your heart, your soul, your intellect, your life. It's that safe harbor you want to sail to and just hide in and rest and rejuvenate. That's what an idol is. It's what idolatry is. And it's sin. And here's what happens with it. Idolatry, this stuff inside of us, makes us transactional utilitarian creatures. We are made in the image of a, of a relational God with a capital R. He is personal with a capital P. He is the person. And we're made in his image. Sin and idolatry has dragged us so far down in the gutter that it's made us transactional people. And I would say as Americans, we're at the front of the line of humanity. And maybe the front of the line in human history is the most transactional creatures that have walked the planet. There's always something in it for me. We're always angling in relationships, in romance, in internships, in jobs, in everything. Even in exercise, there's always an angle that advances me that makes me want those things. This beautiful, beautiful, magnificent world God created is reduced down to little hits of ecstasy and joy that bring me a temporary thrill. I can't enjoy any of the stuff God made because I'm using it for some other agenda. 
I'm manipulating it for some agenda of mine. And it lessens it. And this isn't sustainable and it doesn't last. And so soon it falls apart. One of the other reasons it falls apart is God is relational and he's personal. He's made you just like him in his image. And so when we kind of relate to each other, relate to God, relate to the world in a transactional way, I'm about to show you some examples of this. But when we do this, we deny the very fabric of our being. Doesn't matter if you're religious or not, secular, Christian, atheist, whatever. If you're here in a chair tonight and you're a person, to do this denies the fabric of your being. You are a covenantal creature. You're a relational creature, personal creature, so to to be transactional with the world, utilitarian with the world is to deny the very fabric of your being and you will feel the stretch and you will feel the tension and the ripping as we do this. In reality, the narrative that I was talking about a few minutes ago doesn't pan out to be true. There's plenty of historical examples of that, but it turns out that even as societies become more technologically, medically, economically, scientifically advanced, it hasn't curbed our craving for God at all. And it turns out, what if secularism is the opiate of the masses? What if pluralism is the opiate of the masses, the narcotic, to deal with some inconvenient truths that push against things that would suit us better, things that deny this narrative we want to live in, that we're little gods and goddesses that walk around and get to manipulate the world in whatever way we want. That's where these things fall apart. All idols, there's smoke and mirrors in Texas. They say all hat and no cattle. They say all bark and no bite. They are knockoffs of real things. They are illusions. They are vaporous. There is no substance and they're hollow. And so idolatry traffics in illusions. And that's why it makes us transactional. What drives this though? What are we really after as we pursue idols? And again, hang with me if this is still seeming a little abstract. What are we after as we pursue these created things that we want to be God to us and want to be divine to us that Israel was pursuing? It's what Hosea is talking about this whole passage. The reason I think we do it is we're we're trying to hedge our bets. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what's going on in Israel in this day. These people, I've said it before, would never deny God. They didn't even stop going to church. They didn't even stop offering sacrifices at the temple. God will say in a few more chapters, I don't desire your sacrifices and your rituals and your box checking. I desire mercy. Hear the personal God. Hear the non-transactional God being relational and personal. He's not like us. And he's calling us uh, back in these things. But the reason we do these things is to hedge our bets and spread our eggs out a little bit. The driving force behind idolatry is fear of commitment. I know that phrase resonates with you because you either feel it or you've been burned by somebody else's fear of commitment, right? Fear of commitment is always hurtful if you're the one maybe being committed to because you know what's really at stake is there's a lack of trust or love for me, right? Maybe, maybe there's all kind of other anxieties going on and the person's working through their stuff, but at some level, they, they're skeptical or suspicious of being with you or moving forward with you. And so you feel the hurt of that. But I think that's what is actually underneath and drives idolatry. What if I fully commit 
What if I'm all in? What if Jesus absorbs all of my life for the next, whatever, 80 years? What if every piece of my life, every corner of my life falls under his kingship? And what if, what if I don't like that? What if there's something else out there that might just bring a little temporary thrill that I'm going to need? Is it really wise to put all my eggs in one basket? Don't they tell you to diversify your portfolio? That's the fear that drives idolatry too. What if I get left high and dry and there's not going to be anyone to take care of me? That's why we diversify our relational and our spiritual portfolios. That's why Israel did too. God of Israel is not enough for us. What if he can't make it rain on our crops? What if he won't bless our fertility and we're having babies who can take over the family business? Maybe we should worship Baal too, the Canaanite God, the God of fertility in Canaan. They're spreading out their bets, right? They're hedging their bets. There's a fear of commitment. If we go all in with him, what if, what if it exposes some flanks of things we really want and really need and really crave and really have to have to be okay? Maybe we should kind of send some payments to these other gods too. It's an insurance policy is really what idolatry is. Where is this in the passage? Verse five, God says this. He says, Israel says, I will go after my lovers. It's they, Israel is saying, it's they, my lovers, these idols who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive and my drink. Notice those are all agricultural products. In verse eight, God says, she, Israel has not acknowledged that I, the Lord was the one who gave her the grain all along. I was the one who gave her the new wine and the new oil, which they used for Baal. He talks about it again in verse 12, three times in graphic ways. God says, we have ascribed gratitude. We have looked to these other lovers to hedge our bets, to secure us and give us the comfort, the predictability, the control, the happiness, whatever it is we want just to get by. So Baal is this Canaanite God. Remember the Jews came into the land of Canaan and God told them to cleanse the land, get rid of all the threats that are going to lead your hearts astray. The Jews didn't listen, right? He's like, get rid of all the black widows in the backyard before you go and play. They'll kill you if they're there. And the Jews said, well, that's kind of harsh. We really don't want to do that. So they left a few. Guess what happened? They led the people astray. And so Israel is now in a place where they're, God has said, I am your... I am your warrior. I will fight on your behalf. The battle is the Lord's. I will protect you. And they say, but what if the Egyptians invade? Let's go sign a peace treaty over here. Let's go sign a peace treaty with the Assyrians too. All hedging their bets because there was a deeper suspicion that God was really going to come through for them. Fear of commitment is what drives idolatry. It's what puts us on the hunt for other lovers. Lesser than God, things that he made thinking that they will protect us. And all the while, they and we are saying all the right things. They're doing all the right things, but inwardly they have fallen in love with another. So what does this look like in our lives? I said we'd get specific. Here's some examples. These are a little biographical from my past. Some of them are from my present and yours as well, maybe. On a Wednesday night, on a Sunday morning, we're singing in Christ alone. And on a Thursday night and a Friday night and a Saturday night, pretty much every party we're at, we're drunk. And so in those situations, we're singing in Christ a little and also a little in hedonism, also a little in debauchery, also a little in a thrill. I got to have my fun. Come on, it's college. 
Do you see deeply embedded in those the fear of commitment? Are you kidding, Ben? Yielding my life to Jesus and being controlled by him and submitting myself to him is going to lead to fun, not the kind of fun that's going to happen on a Thursday night. So no thanks. And we start doing the dance. It's called syncretism, which means I got a husband and I got some boyfriends on the side. I got a wife and I got some girlfriends on the side. I have a God and I have some gods on the side because I don't trust this God. He can't, he can, I, I can't conceive of a weekend that's worth living without a few eggs in this basket too. The only way our behavior begins to change and we start making new decisions is when we realize what we've fallen in love with and who we've fallen out of love with. You can't go the behavior modification. I did that for years in college. I need to moderate better. Not four nights out a week, maybe one night out a week. That is a fool's errand. And until you realize you're deeply suspicious that God could ever give you life, you'll be chasing your tail all along, trying to change your behavior when in reality you are deeply in love with other gods. Or it looks like a little bit of Jesus plus a little bit of pluralism, plus drink a little bit of the cultural Kool-Aid, parrot the cultural lines, say the things the crowd needs you to say to approve of you and validate you as one of us and gives you a pass. You don't become a target of animosity. You don't become a target of negative attention. And so what the way we act in our fingers is we dilute and we water down and we whitewash so that we can blend in so that we don't show up on overheard the next day being ridiculed. These fears are real, are they not? I don't want to be on overheard. <laughs> I know it would be for a bad reason, some dad joke or whatever, me and my minivan. You don't want to be on there either. These are real fears, and it's fear of commitment. It is, a, it is a fear that in that scenario, if that were ever to happen, if someone were to say, that guy's a Christian, and maybe I'm not a closed-minded guy, maybe I'm a thoughtful and loving guy, or maybe you're a, a, a wonderfully loving girl, but they're not going to say that about you. They're going to label you and dispense of you. And we can't imagine that being a life worth living, even if we have Jesus in that moment, but we don't have social standing anymore. Is this getting real? This is syncretism. This is idolatry. This is religious pluralism. This is Israel in 750. This is America in 2019 in the church. We are hedging our bets because we have deep suspicions of our God that he could actually come through for us. Beth Moore, of all people, I don't know much about what she reads, and this is the first time in my pastoral career I have quoted her, but she said something amazing at Passion two years ago. She said, we will watch a generation of Christians set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. And stunningly, it'll sound completely plausible. This will be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in our generation. Sacrifice truth for love's sake. And you will rise or you will fall based on whether you will sacrifice one for the other or whether you will have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love. It's not just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and getting your game face on and having the culture to live in the tension of fidelity to Jesus in an age where it's not as cool as it was 10 years ago. Or whether you choose to dilute that and hide him for the temporary smile of a crowd that will just as soon frown at you in the next moment. These are the things 
that are driving us and that will go on. So idolatry is always this transactional. It's always this utilitarian. And therefore, it is no accident that God chooses this sustained image throughout the book of Hosea of prostitution. He is not gratuitous. He's not doing shock value, saying, well, they're nodding off. I better drop this line in there so they wake back up and listen to me. It's a very fitting metaphor, right? Given what we're talking about. No prostitute ever slept with a man or a woman because they loved them or because they cared about them or had any concern for them at all. They slept with them because they wanted money or they wanted an orgasm, and then they put their clothes back on and they walked back to a miserable life after that, both of them. And God is saying there is something fitting about that meta- metaphor, the purely transactional nature of it. It is anti-relational. It has nothing to do with the other person. It is anti-covenantal, what we talked about last week of the way God loves us. It is all about what can I get out of this while missing what the whole act itself ever points to or means. And so whatever it is we're chasing, love, it's never real love. It's only the illusion of love when idolatry gets its hands on it. It's never real life. It's only the illusion And on and on and on. Derek Kidner says, false lovers and idols are illusions that recede with every step we take towards them, especially in times of plenty. This is hard to see. These idolatries that that live in our hearts and that tempt us from time to time also blind us to the present mercy of God in your life. In verse 8, God says this about Israel. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, the things that she was looking to bail prostituting herself out to get him to give her the favor. God said, I was already giving you that. Baal doesn't make it rain. I made it rain. All that had to go into the process of making the olive oil and the linen, every step along the way, all 130 sunny days for the olives to grow were 130 days of my mercies to you. And all of the cotton that grew in that linen was all of my grace. All along, you missed what I was doing morning by morning in your life because of this insane chasing after these other things. This blindness only disillusions us with God all the more, right? We can't see his present gifts to us because of the the dullness of our hearts. We begin to blame him more, resent him more. God, where are you? What are you doing? When are you going to start showing up? When are you going to feel near again and bless me? This is what happens. And I want to say this before we move to our last point. I hope, even if you're not tracking with everything I'm saying, I hope you have begun to see how tall of an order it is to deal with this kind of junk in our hearts. Is it at least that much clear? This is, this is not a high, like a theologically like high-minded conscious decision we make. Today, I would love to pursue three idols. I know they're not going to satisfy me. I know they're going to kill me, but I'm still going to do it. And at the end of the day, I'm going to go back and repent. It's subconscious. It is lived out. Each day we live is a lived out expression of what we really love, who we really think will provide for us. Taming an idolatrous heart is like wrestling a greased pig. It will only lead to a pig that has escaped, gotten away again, and you being covered in the stink of the pig. It is too slippery. It is too unwieldy unless you have someone there to help you corner that and subdue it and tame it. 
and wall it in and box it in. And those are exactly word for word what God describes that he does to his people in the midst of our idolatry. Verse 6 and 7, Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in. I will corner her. I will box her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but she will not catch them. We will look for our lovers, but we will not find them. He will block our path. He will put thorns in our way. He will wall you in. We will chase our lovers. You will look for your lovers, but you will not be able to find them. And this is incredible grace. So what's what's going on here? That God would do this for us. What's his intention? To screw with your life like a puppet and make it miserable? The intention is what comes next, the very next verse. Then, 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 she, Israel, will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. If you grew up in the church, you know about the parable of the prodigal son. It's almost identical. This came first, then that came. This was probably on Jesus' mind when he shared that parable. Same thing happens with the son. Takes all of dad's money, goes and spends it on women and booze in a far country. Transactional, right? And he finds emptiness in that. He comes to his senses one day, eating from a pig sign. He says, very transactional comment, not a relational comment, not a loving comment. But he says, even the slaves in my father's house eat better meals than I'm eating right now. Maybe I should walk back home and my father will make me a servant. Not, I love my father. I gave it all away. I had the best thing ever. She does not say, I loved my husband. I threw it all away. I squandered it. I want him. She said, she's doing the pro and con list at rock bottom. Well, it's better there than here. Even in her repentance, Israel is still just covered in the stink of this stuff. Is the walking wounded of her own pursuits, as we are. What does God do in reaction to this? He walls us off from the poison we're chasing. He puts thorns in between you and the murderers taking your soul. He paints you into a corner so you can't get out. We experience this as disillusionment. We experience this as disillusionment with God. Are you with me? I do. When I'm not getting what I want, he gets blamed. And in this situation, he's fine taking the blame. Because he's like, you're right, it is me who's keeping you from what you want. It is me who's been withholding that. Because if you kept getting that, you'd be walking off a cliff. So in this situation, God is happy to take the blame. Grace will disillusion you with the illusion of idolatry. Because God cares. And he will not participate in my self-destruction or yours. But he will intervene and thwart it. I really have a theory, and I think it comes out of this passage in the parable of the prodigal son, that everybody is really just looking for a marriage and a home in life. Sometimes there are physical correlations to that. Sometimes, probably for most of you, you actually grew up in a home. We have friends up the road from us who don't have a physical home, but I guarantee they still want a home. 
Deep in the heart of every person, every refugee, every unsettled person, whoever it is, we want a home, we crave a home. And we want, we want someone in that home. We want a person in the home who knows us, who's excited when they see you coming home, who accepts you, who is a safe harbor, a refuge, a security, a comfort, a source of joy and warmth and happiness. Everybody wants a home and everyone wants a marriage. Maybe not literally. Maybe you're like, I love my bachelorhood or my bachelorettehood or whatever. That was me in your situation back then. That's why dating was complicated. But even if you don't want to be married one day, even if you're not called to be married one day, you still want to be known, don't you? You want there to be someone out here who sees you as you are and says, I love you. And I'm not running away just because I've seen you as you are. You crave that intimacy and welcome and acceptance. I do too. You crave the security of a home. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with someone in the universe from whom we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. Tim Keller adds to that. We are all exiles, always longing for home always traveling and never arriving. The houses and the families that we actually inhabit are only the ends along the way, but they aren't home. Home continues to evade us. There is an old Spanish story. Maybe you've heard it. A father and a son become estranged. The son runs away from home. The father searches for his son for months and months and months, and there's no sign of his son. And so as a last-ditched effort to find his son, the father takes out an ad in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad reads, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The father shows up on Saturday morning to the newspaper office, and 800 men named Paco are there who had responded to the ad looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. I don't care where you are with God, if you know where you are with God, if you know you don't believe in him, you think you know you do believe in him. I dare you to tell me you don't long for a home with somebody in it. A marriage and a home. And I dare you to tell me that you would not like home to come to you because you can't find your way home. We get so turned around and so lost and so dizzy from all these other pursuits every week. I dare you to tell me that you don't want home to come to you, that you don't need home to come to you, that that you don't want a husband walking the streets for you, guys and girls. We're his wife. He's our husband. That you don't want a husband walking the streets, finding you when you've gotten lost. Friends, the cure for idolatry. You want to know the cure for idolatry? You want to know what does subdue and tame that greased pig and gives you the world back and all of creation in it? To rightly relate to it and to enjoy it and to love it? The cure of idolatry is powerful, transforming, healing love of a non-transactional God. Not a God who is using you for some greater end or some agenda, but who sees you and knows your name, and knows your story, and knows your coordinates, and is coming for you. That is what heals. 
is love that walks the long road back to healing with you. It is the patient and pursuing love of God that heals our hearts. And this is not an emotional, ethereal love. It is incarnated. It is historical. First John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us in history, in time, in space. A husband has come to planet Earth looking for his bride and has brought her home. And home has come looking for the homeless and the wanderer to welcome us. I want to end by reading these last few verses of the passage. I hope this passage still had your attention when Hunter read it earlier. Therefore, the Lord says about his idolatrous bride who has commitment issues with him. Therefore, I am now going to allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. You'll no longer get me confused with those silly little other gods. I will remove the names of the Baals from your lips and no longer will your name will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in all faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. This covenant that he is talking about is secured in one who will accomplish this. The husband who comes and brings home to us in Jesus. If you don't know him and you're hearing this, you have a a big question tonight. Do you not want this? Do you believe, do you believe the naivety of how we started this whole conversation? That, That the religion that God is the opiate of the masses? Or are you beginning to see that unbelief is the opiate? Suppression of the truth is the existential crutch to try to get us through life. Jesus is not a coping mechanism. He is a savior and a redeemer who has come to bring you home. And he has come looking for his people. Will you respond? Brothers and sisters in Christ who are here tonight. Can we at least tonight acknowledge the silliness of our idolatry and the transactional ways we treat each other and we treat ministries and we treat churches, the consumeristic ways we treat God? And can we begin to ask for his mercy to repent and to see people and to see him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that very prayer. Make that come true. Pursue us, allure us, draw us back. Work in our hearts, whether our hearts are dead and need resurrection or whether our hearts have been resurrected and need revival. We need your power and we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have come looking for us the first time and the thousandth time. Amen.